Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program update on diffuse large lymphoma. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other blood cancer organizations and also cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 364 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, so from rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Indonesia, Ireland, Portugal, New Zealand, Nigeria, Norway, and United Kingdom. So this is a global call, actually, from all over the world, actually. Um, and we really um, credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, today's program is supported by AbbVie, Celgene Corporation, a grant from Genentech, and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have the best speakers today on the call, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. And Dr. Strauss is attending Physician, Lymphoma Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Clinical Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Strauss will be addressing an overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, including staging and grading, current treatment options, emerging treatment approaches, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. Um, welcome to this discussion. I will give a brief overview uh, of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is the most common Lymphoma in developed countries, approximately 25% of lymphomas are, are diffuse large B-cell lymphomas or variants of them. There is a slight male predominance, and it is a disease of older middle-aged people. The median age is 64 years. The, the most common type is called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, not otherwise specified or Sometimes I colloquially uh, refer to it as garden variety, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. In this uh, tumor, the malignant lymphocytes are larger than normal lymphocytes and have features under the microscope of somewhat more primitive cells than normal lymphocytes, including oval uh, nuclei uh, with prominent nucleoli within the nuclei and a vesicular chromatin pattern. Uh, in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, all normal follicular architecture that's present in normal lymph nodes is effaced by the tumor cells in contrast to the follicular B-cell lymphomas. And there are two big categories of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified, which, are, which we'll talk about a little bit later, the germinal center type and the non-germinal center type. There are a number of other uh, subtypes, which are uh, many of which are quite rare, and I'll just touch on a few of them. There is T-cell-rich B-cell lymphoma, in which there's an admixture of normal T lymphocytes that are not malignant, and this disease is related to a variant of Hodgkin lymphoma that is closely biologically related to low-grade B-cell lymphomas, nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. There is primary mediastinal large-cell lymphoma. This involves the lymph nodes in the center of the chest or the mediastinum. This has genetic features similar to those in Hodgkin lymphoma, and like Hodgkin lymphoma, typically occurs in somewhat younger patients than many of the other uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. 
There are intravascular large B-cell lymphomas, a very rare condition, which is quite a difficult one to treat, which uh, occurs in the brain, but also other organs, including the skin, kidneys, and lung. There is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma leg type, which is typically a disease of older patients with tumors, skin tumors occurring below the knees. And this is an aggressive tumor also, which can spread to other sites and other organs. There's lymphomatoid granulomatosis, which is a, associated with the Epstein-Barr virus, most commonly involves the lung, but can also involve skin, bones, and kidneys. There are EBV, uh, Epstein-Barr virus-associated large cell lymphomas that occur more commonly in Asia and are associated with immunodeficiency. Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in patients who, in individuals who have HIV infection, constitutes an AIDS-defining illness. The Growth of these lymphomas and the course of these lymphomas vary between sort of moderately aggressive and highly aggressive. Uh, actually, in the most recent uh, classification, they have taken off uh, some patients that we used to call diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and call them high-grade B-cell lymphomas. There is a variant of these uh, that can either be called aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or high-grade B-cell lymphomas that have overexpression of two or three genes. Uh, they can be either overexpressing CMYK and BCL2, which are called double-hit lymphomas, or CMYK, BCL2, and BCL6, which are called triple-hit lymphomas. These are very aggressive lymphomas, and I will talk about them uh, and their management a bit later. Another aggressive lymphoma is plasmablastic lymphoma, where the cells, the tumor cells, uh, look somewhere in between large uh, primitive lymphocytes and plasma cells, which are the descendants of normal B cells. And there is a entity uh, which is called B-cell lymphoma with features intermediate between diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and Hodgkin lymphoma, which typically occurs in the mediastinum, the area in the center of the chest, and common with Hodgkin lymphoma and primary mediastinal diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Sometimes these are called gray zone lymphomas. And lastly, there can be transformations of underlying low-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin uh, uh, low-grade B-cell lymphomas that have an appearance when biopsied have a more aggressive course, and when biopsied look like diffuse large B-cell lymphomas. Uh, this is called transformation, and lymphomas that can do this include follicular B-cell lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and small cell lymphoma of the chronic lymphocytic leukemia type, and nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. Diffuse large B-cell lymphomas can involve lymph nodes and or other organs. Like all lymphomas, we really need a tissue biopsy to make a diagnosis usually. We rely heavily on imaging for staging. We use uh, computerized tomography or CT scans, which is a type of computerized generated uh, x-rays, which can show the size of lymph nodes and the size of organs. Usually, lymph nodes are enlarged if they're involved by this disease. And we complement this with a nuclear medicine scan called PET scan which uh, uses a radioactively labeled analog of glucose, which is the building block of sugar metabolism in all living cells. This uh, it gets into the uh, cells but does not, is not metabolized or broken down into other sugars. And you can do a nuclear medicine scan and see what sites are involved. It is not specific because infections and other inflammatory things can cause this, but it is helpful in staging. Um, we don't do bone marrow uh, biopsies as often as we used to because it's been found that PET scans can give uh, as much information or even better information about involvement of bones. 
Uh, we do blood counts. We look at blood chemistries, including the lactic acid serum, lactic acid dehydrogenase, an enzyme that is produced by normal tissue, liver, and, and muscle, but also by tumor cells. And elevations of this occur with aggressive, large, bulky lymphomas with a high uh, turnover proliferation rate. We do uh, lumbar punctures, we do spinal taps to look at the spinal fluid for certain types of lymphoma that, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, that can, that have an increased risk of spreading to uh, the spinal fluid. We use the, we still use the Ann Arbor staging classification developed for Hodgkin lymphoma 47 years ago with some modifications. This uh, divides the body in half of the diaphragm, which divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. So we talk about disease above the diaphragm, upper body, or below the diaphragm, lower body. So stage one disease would be disease in a single lymph node or lymph node area or a single site that's not a lymph node, such as bone, thyroid, and other sites, stomach, Stage three would be disease in lymph nodes and or spleen. Spleen is not exactly a lymph node, but it's kind of like a lymph node above and below the diaphragm. And stage four is disease in, uh, in multiple sites that are not lymph nodes or a, any more than one, site, one or more sites associated with lymph nodes. And these, would, uh, these uh, sites that are not lymph nodes include liver, bone marrow, and lung. Uh, B symptoms, fevers, night sweats, and weight loss are important in Hodgkin lymphoma where early stages can have these this type of symptoms. With the fuselage B cell lymphoma, these usually occur with patients with very advanced, with advanced disease, high-grade disease, and not so much in patients who are early stage, so it's not as important to document it as it is in Hodgkin lymphoma. So I'll turn briefly to kind of frontline treatment options at time of diagnosis. For limited stage disease, mostly stage one, but some are 1E, which is extranodal, 1E, one extranodal, or non-lymph node site. The treatment options include uh, short courses of chemotherapy. We'll talk about the RCHOP regimen for three or four cycles and radiation therapy, or uh, more recently, uh, we've been treating with sometimes somewhat more cycles of chemotherapy without radiation therapy, four to six cycles as compared to three to four cycles with radiation therapy with good results and uh, ability to avoid radiation therapy. For advanced stage disease, as I mentioned, the most common type is the not a, uh, otherwise specified type. And we divide this into two categories according to which genes are overexpressed in the tumor cells. This is uh, really determined by molecular studies, by genetic studies that are called gene expression profiling. But uh, these techniques are not really readily available in clinical practice, so we use uh, immune histochemistry or special stains that are done on the diagnostic material, which uh, stain for proteins that are produced by these genes. So we, we have the germinal center type, which uh, is a malignancy of cells that originate in the growing part of the normal lymph follicles, the germinal centers or the non-germinal center type, which is what we call it when we use the stains in clinical practice, which are activated B cells that are not of germinal center or origin. Uh, there is rough correlation uh, between these two techniques. The genetic studies are really the gold standard, but the practical use of the stains tells us pretty much which ones are in which category. The standard treatment for this has not changed uh, very much over many decades. So for 40 years, we've been using a combination called CHOP, or cyclophosphamide, hydroxyldonorubicin, or doxorubicin, oncovin, or vincristin, and prednisone. And for the last 20 years, we've been combining it with the antibody rituximab 
and studies have shown a much better outcome for the combination of the of rituximab and chemotherapy than chemotherapy or rituximab alone. So uh, for the uh, germinal center type, this would be standard treatment. Um, and for the uh, uh, non-germinal center type, results with RCHOP, the standard treatment, are not quite as good as in the germinal center type. So some groups have used other drugs uh, in addition to RCHOP, uh, which seem to, at least in non-randomized studies that are just single groups of patients, show somewhat better results. We've been using RCHOP uh, for four cycles and then three cycles of a regimen that we use before transplant in patients who've relapsed called R-ICE, which is rituximab, ifosamide, and carboplatin. A large randomized trial in over 500 uh, patients was conducted by the various inter, uh, intergroup of various uh, cooperative groups sponsored by the National Cancer Institute comparing standard chemotherapy with RCHOP with a variant of RCHOP called dose-adjusted uh, EPOC-R. And it did not, in the overall study, show a benefit for either one of these regimens with somewhat more toxicity for the uh, dose-adjusted EPOC. However, uh, single series suggests that there may be some advantage for the EPOC regimen, particularly in the double hit uh, lymphomas, which I mentioned briefly before, which are usually GCB type with overexpression of the MYC and BCL2 and possibly uh, triple hit with an additional overexpression of BCL6. Uh, and uh, primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, one of the subtypes that I mentioned, does very well with the EPOC regimen uh, without radiation therapy, whereas radiation therapy has to be used with RCHOP to get a similar result. The variation in EPOC uses the same drugs as in RCHOP with the addition of atoposide, uh, and the four, three of the drugs are given by continuous infusion continuously over four days. And this is doxorubicin, uh, uh, etoposide, and vincristine. On the first day, rituximab is also given. On the fifth day after the four days infusion, cyclophosphamide is given. And this is repeated every three weeks. Some uh, sites of involvement in types of cancer and types of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are associated with uh, a propensity to spread to the spinal fluid and to the central nervous system, which, is, uh, which are areas that are not really reached by the chemotherapy re regimen of RCHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC-R. Uh, and so uh, these would include... Uh, uh, lymphomas of the testis, a tumor of older men, uh, and kidney and adrenal involvement, which are uncommon, are associated with a high incidence of this spread, and also uh, breast lymphoma in some series. Other things that might predispose to this would be bone marrow involvement and aggressive tumors with a high LDH, a lot of uh, sites that are not lymph nodes, and a, uh, a bulky disease with a fast-growing rate. Um, so the prophylaxis uh, for the uh, for for the central nervous system and spinal fluid uh, that is not reached by the uh, conventional chemotherapy drugs consists of either giving chemotherapy directly into the spinal fluid by spinal tap, or to give a drug that gets into the central nervous system better than the conventional drugs, which is high dose methotrexate. We have a, uh, there are very few clinical trials now uh, testing new drugs, but there certainly is room for improvement, although a substantial number of patients are cured by these regimens. One that we have open here is a uh, new kind of chemotherapy agent called an antibody drug conjugate. This is called polituzumab vidotin. It has an antibody that attaches to the tumor cells, the antibody Part of the molecule is linked to a drug, monomethyl orostatin E, 
which is delivered into the tumor cells by this attachment and kills them. So this is being tried, uh, compared in a large phase three study where there's randomization to standard treatment and in combination with uh, a variation of standard treatment. Um, I guess just to, uh, I'm a little over, but I just want to say a little bit about adjunctive care that, you know, that can help uh, you get through these types of treatments. There are infection risks due to low white blood cell counts uh, with a number of these regimens, and this can be somewhat, le this risk can be lessened and shortened by use of growth factors such as filgrastum or nupogen or nulasta or pegfilgrastum. Some uh, of the very bulky, fast-growing diseases, uh, when they are treated, a lot of cancer cells die and can release things into the blood that can cause trouble with the heart and with the kidneys. Uh, this is called tumor lysis syndrome, uric acid, potassium, uh, and uh, phosphorus are among the things that can be released. And so we give prophylaxis, usually a lot of fluids and drugs like allopurinol that block the production of uric acid or like respiracase that break it down. Sometimes this is done in the hospital with the first treatment. We do have very good anti-nausea regimens, which we give with chemotherapy, and sometimes we give patients uh, drugs to take home if they have more trouble. You can have infusion reactions with rituximab, such as fevers, chills, and rash. There is temporary hair loss with uh, these regimens. We can prescribe a hair prosthesis or wig, and usually insurance companies will pick that up. And there are other problems like sore, mouth sores, which can be handled with local measures. So I'm a little over, but this concludes my part of the overview, and I'd like to thank everybody for your attention and look forward to your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was really outstanding and a wonderful introduction to the whole call and lots of important information for everybody in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of um, diffuse large D-cell lymphoma. So I think everyone now has a, a lot of information that they may not have had coming into the call, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is the John P. Leonard M.D. Gwertzman Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma. Assistant Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. And Dr. Rutherford will be addressing treatment options for resistant disease, the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, tips to manage side effects, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's now my great privilege, and I'm delighted to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford. Uh, thank you to the audience for participating and to Dr. Mesner for the introduction. I also enjoyed um, hearing Dr. Strauss's uh, information presented as well. And I will touch on a couple of the same topics briefly, but, but we'll try to give you um, different information as I go forward. Uh, so I'm first tasked with talking about treatment for resistant diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I want to make a distinction between what we call relapsed versus refractory disease first. Uh, we usually use the term relapsed if a patient has received one of the first-line therapies that Dr. Strauss mentioned, such as RCHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC-R, and have had a good response and typically a complete re a response, and then, say, a couple years after um, after finishing that therapy, the, uh, the lymphoma comes back. Um, that would be considered relapsed disease versus refractory, um, which is really a situation where the patient does not respond well to that first-line RCHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC-R or has a very short time period before the disease is detected following the completion of the therapy. Um, in general, our management of, of both of these situations is similar, um, but it is more difficult for uh, a patient who has had the refractory-type disease um, to get into a remission with subsequent therapy um, given what we call chemo-resistance, and we may favor more uh, novel approaches or targeted-type strategies, which I'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, I also want to note that just like with the initial diagnosis of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it's important that we do an imaging test, such as a PET-CT scan, 
um, that Dr. Strauss went over to see exactly where um, the disease is present. And if at all po possible, we prefer to do a, a biopsy of the most active area that is seen on the, on the PET CT scan in order to ensure that the lymphoma is present and to uh, characterize it further uh, to make sure it's the same entity that it was initially when it was diagnosed. The big picture of management for relapsed or refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is second-line chemotherapy combinations followed by what is called an autologous stem cell transplant. And it is very important that if a patient goes through a stem cell transplant that they are in a complete response if possible. Um, people have much better outcomes if there's no evidence of, of the lymphoma being active before that procedure. Um, so they would first receive a chemotherapy that's different from the original regimen. Um, so if we were to give them RCHOP or dose-adjusted EPOC or a second time, it would be very unlikely to work because those lymphoma cells have become resistant to those, those drugs. So ideally, we would use a regimen that contains different drugs, um, with the exception being rituximab is still a standard of care to be used in the second-line setting. Um, so we would give a regimen that includes rituximab as the anti-CD20 monoclonal clonal antibody that Dr. Strauss mentioned. Um, there are two um, primary regimens that were compared in a study called the CORAL study, um, one of which um, he already brought up called RICE, um, which is rituximab plus ifosfamide, carboplatin, and etoposide, um, versus another regimen called rituximab DHAP, um, which included uh, drugs called dexamethasone, high-dose cytarabine, and cisplatin. And results were essentially equivalent. So these regimens, either of, either of them can be used um, for second-line treatment in diffuse RGB cell lymphoma. I wanted to note that there is a, um, a variation of the RDHAP called RDHAX, which substitutes a drug called cisplatin for uh, um, oxaliplatin is used instead of cisplatin, which can often be better tolerated in older patients, particularly those who have kidney dysfunction. Uh, we typically do two cycles of chemotherapy and then another PET-CT scan to assess the response. Um, and the ideal goal is to get to the autologous stem cell transplant as quickly as we can once the patient is in a complete remission or complete response state. Um, we will um, sometimes do another cycle or two if the patient has a good response but is not quite there to the CR um, or complete response. Um, the stem cell process is... is um, one in which a, involves a patient's own stem cells being collected. And I want to note also some, some of my patients get concerned that when we use the word transplant that that involves a surgery. This is not a surgery. It's a, it's a medical procedure where a patient is injected with a, a stimulator of the bone marrow's white blood cells. Um, filgrastim is one of the uh, classic agents that can be used, and that helps to get the stem cells, which are the earliest form of cell in the body and can essentially repopulate the body um, at a later date with all new clean blood cells that do not have any lymphoma in them. Um, and so a patient would undergo these injection treatments, um, which are aimed at stimulating the bone marrow to produce stem cells and put them out into the blood so that they can then be collected um, by um, a special type of IV, um, essentially um, kind of like a, um, a more intense blood draw that happens over a couple hour time period. Um, that would be done at some point um, in the interim while they're getting the chemotherapy um, cycles, um, the second line chemotherapy cycles. And then once the patient is in this complete response state, they would then um, usually or often traditionally has been done as an inpatient in the hospital, although some centers do this as an outpatient now. The patient would receive a, then a third regimen of chemotherapy that's considered very high dose, um, so high dose that it would be difficult for the body, if not impossible for the body, to overcome um, to recover their blood cells um, from um, from that without assistance from the stem cells. Um, so then the stem cells are given back um, by uh, through the vein. It's kind of like a blood transfusion, actually. It's kind of an anticlimactic process where the patient receives stem cells, and it takes uh, usually a couple weeks, but the, eventually the blood cells become repopulated to the point where the patient um, is able to um, 
leave the hospital or you know leave um, very close monitoring uh, by the medical team and uh, and move forward on and, and hopefully are cured of the lymphoma. I wanted to mention that there's a third treatment option that has recently emerged over the past um, few years for patients that have relapsed or refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma, and this is called CAR T cells or chimeric, chimeric antigen receptor T cells. There are currently two CAR T-cell products that are approved for patients who have received two or more lines of therapy for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and these tend to be either patients who've, who have had an autologous stem cell transplant and have then relapsed after that, or patients who have not been able to get an autologous stem cell transplant because the uh, other chemotherapy regimens have not worked well enough to get them into a state <clears throat> that in which um, a, a stem cell transplant can be done. Um, and we could spend m many hours talking about CAR T cells, but I'll just basically um, state that um, the, the point of them overall is to alter a patient's own T cells, which are normally good at fighting cancer, but in the, in the case of a resistant um, lymphoma are not working well. And this, is, this basically enables um, the T cells to be able to work better to, better, to then fight the lymphoma. Um, this also involves a blood collection from a patient, um, and when it is done from one of these companies, um, uh, there is usually about a turnaround time of, I'd say, about 15 to 20 days, so the blood is collected, sent to the company who then processes it, sends it back to the hospital, and then it can be infused into the patient. There are a number of clinical trials that are ongoing with these agents, and some centers are actually able to make the CAR T cells them, it, themselves in, in labs that are studying that. Um, and one, one other really interesting um, concept that is ongoing in clinical trials is looking at patients who um, have have um, received a second-line chemotherapy and then are randomized to either get autologous stem cell transplant or CAR T cells. So it will be very um, interesting for us to follow over the coming years if, if um, actually CAR T cells may be proven to have a better outcome than autologous stem cell transplant. It's possible that it may replace, at least in some patients, um, that type of therapy. Um, I do want to mention that, that both of these types of therapies do have some notable side effects and have to be monitored very closely. Um, many centers um, have a specific um, stem cell transplant team. Um, so, for example, I think both Dr. Strauss and I are primarily take care of patients with lymphoma, and um, we would then refer patients, at least in my case, would refer patients to a transplant-specific doctor who would be administering that type of therapy and monitoring them very closely, often in the hospital or, or close by the hospital um, after those therapies are administered. Um, I do um, want to point out that autologous stem cell transplant is a potentially curable or curative option for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and CAR T-cells are looking promising for some patients. There are, there are certainly some patients who do not have long-term remissions or are unable to get these treatments because of having disease that is difficult to control, and therefore it is very important that we continue to push forward with clinical trials that are aimed at improving outcomes in this disease. So I wanted to spend some time going over clinical trials, um, which I think are very important in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma at every point in the patient's treatment course, uh, both for newly diagnosed and those with relapsed or refractory disease. Um, the focus, um, as, as Dr. Strauss mentioned, has been in some cases to combine chemotherapy with novel agents that are targeted to the lymphoma cells. So one um, big picture concept is that um, uh, chemotherapy works by uh, by killing dividing cells but are not specific to cancer cells, whereas some of the targeted type medicines that we're uh, using now, many are, are um, approved for some types of lymphoma but maybe not for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma but are being studied in clinical trials. Um, these type of targeted treatments we think work more directly at killing lymphoma cells, um, although they can have some other side effects and, and may have some what we call off-target effects where they, they may not be completely specific, but our, our goal is to basically find combinations that increase the cure rates for patients at every step of the, the treatment course, um, incorporating these novel type strategies. Um, I did want to highlight one uh, type of aggressive lymphoma that, that uh, Dr. Strauss mentioned that we 
um, refer to as double hit or triple hit lymphoma. It's technically not part of the diffuse surge B cell lymphoma category any longer, but we often still think of it in a very similar way um, because um, it, it, it presents in a similar fashion. And, and um, uh, unfortunately, the, these diseases tend to not be as responsive to chemotherapy as um, some of the other types of diffuse surge B cell lymphoma that he mentioned. Although I, I do want to say that I've had a number of patients with um, double and triple hit lymphomas who have had very good responses to standard chemotherapy and remain in remission for many years. Um, but one, one focus of my research in particular has been on um, this aggressive type of lymphoma called double hit. Um, and one clinical trial that we've been conducting here at Weill Cornell um, and with a number of institutions across the, the U.S. has been with an inhibitor of BCL2. That's one of the genes that is um, rearranged in um, in double hit lymphoma, um, and the drug is called venetoclax, and we've combined it with our dose-adjusted EPOC-R in newly diagnosed lymphoma. There will be another clinical trial focusing on particularly double hit and another subgroup called double expressor lymphomas with this combination. Um, and, uh, and so that, and uh, I, w I was going to speak more, I think, about specific clinical trials, but I think I'm, um, I'm taking uh, adequate time going over the, the big picture concepts, so I'm going to um, uh, leave those for discussion in the questions section if, if people have uh, more questions about um, specific new agents. Um, but I just do want to emphasize the importance of considering clinical trials at every step along the way um, of a DLBCL diagnosis as um, novel agents really do have the potential to um, improve the outcomes in this disease. Um, Dr. Schultz did already go over some um, side effects and discomfort. Um, because diffuse surge B cell lymphoma is a curable disease in general, we would tolerate more side effects um, in this disease than we may um, in a disease that we expect that someone would be not not able to be cured but would, would live with for, for a long period of time. Um, so um, we know that the, the for example, with our CHOP course is about 18 weeks, um, so um, we we would um, we would be um, you know, willing to, to to put up with some bad effects of the drugs in order to get rid of the cancer altogether, knowing that it would only be a temporary issue. Um, so some of the side effects of the uh, treatments that I've mentioned, rituximab can cause infusion reactions on the first dose, um, and so our nurses are very experienced at giving this medication slowly. We give Benadryl and um, Tylenol and steroids sometimes to try to prevent a reaction. Um, other uh, multi-agent chemotherapy often has notable side effects like hair loss, which was mentioned, nausea, vomiting, um, numbness or tingling of the fingers or toes, and heart toxicity. Um, so we, we ask very carefully about these types of symptoms at baseline and throughout the treatment process. We often do echocardiograms at, at the beginning and, and sometimes during treatment. Um, that's a, um, aimed at assessing the heart function to ensure it's safe to give doxorubicin, which is what we think is the, the, the strongest acting of the chemotherapy agents in our CHOP, um, but can um, in, in rare cases cause heart toxicity later on after the treatment is done. Um, so I think it's important for, for those of you who are undergoing treatment to be uh, very forthcoming with your doctor about side effects that you're experiencing because uh, we, we do have um, supportive care treatments for them and we also um, would sometimes dose reduce the um, chemotherapy if, if we believe that someone's really having a very serious um, side effect from one of the agents. I'm going to move on just um, in conclusion here to talk about um, key questions to ask your healthcare team. Um, so I would say um, the most important part of this would be to make sure that the diagnosis is accurate. Now, as Dr. Strauss said, diffuse surge B cell lymphoma is the most common lymphoma, and it's generally pretty straightforward diagnosis to make as compared to some other lymphomas we tra treat that may be more difficult. Um, but I, I would uh, I recommend that patients consider getting a second opinion either on their pathology slides to have them sent to an academic center um, and also consider seeing um, a specialist in lymphoma um, regarding treatment options. And even if you ultimately don't pursue treatment with that doctor, it's nice to be connected to an academic center where clinical trials are often prevalent in case the lymphoma comes back, you may um, you know, really want to have that, that relationship already established. Um, I think it's very important, as you can tell, that, that I believe um, that clinical trials play a uh, very important role in this disease. So I would ask 
your doctor if they have any clinical trial options, and if not, if there's another place that they could recommend, so at least that you can understand what options are available. Most uh, of our clinical trials would include the standard of care therapy plus an ex potentially plus an extra agent or in a randomized fashion where you may get an extra agent, and that extra drug may help um, to improve your outcome. I would also ask um, the um, doctor um, what side effects to expect, many of which we've already mentioned here, and then um, the uh, full treatment plan that's recommended, um, which may include some of the CNS, central nervous system prophylaxis um, that Dr. Strauss mentioned, and then also the plan for monitoring after therapy. Um, I think I will conclude here, um, as I know I've gone over as well. There's so much we can talk about this in this disease, and um, I'm happy to answer questions when we get to that section in just a little bit if anything came up as I was talking. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was really um, outstanding and just an excellent presentation and covered a lot of material, and we um, and we will have time for questions, so that's terrific. And I, I want all of you to start thinking of your questions. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services so you can get your questions organized, and then we'll start taking all your questions. We'll just try to take as many of your questions as possible. If you don't get your questions, I'll explain to you all how to get your questions answered at the end of the call. But nice if we'll try to take as many as possible. So uh, Cancer Care is a national organization that is staffed by primarily oncology social workers with trained and master's degree in social work. And we help people with uh, practical and financial assistance. So we have a copay foundation. We also do um, offer um, help with um, just counseling services. So a chance to talk to a trained professional. Um, those services are all free. And you can do that on the telephone or online. Um, and uh, basically we're simply a phone call or um, a mouse click away from contacting us. Um, and I will be giving you, you'll be getting at the end of this program an evaluation form, and in the evaluation form we'll give you all the, um, any reference that we've all mentioned during the call, you'll have that, and you soon will have all these phone numbers as well. Um, so uh, we, we offer also support groups, and we offer both support groups online and on the telephone. And a lot of people find that very helpful just because many of you may live quite a distance from your treating health care center. And also if you have any types of, um, you know, treatment side effects or other responsibilities that you may have, it may be difficult sometimes to take the time to go somewhere to a, a support group so that um, many people find these very um, very convenient, let me put it that way, um, and, uh, and also um, so we have about 138 online support groups, and those groups are actually, um, we have them by, some of them are organized by the type of cancer or disease it is, so we could have um, types of lymphoma. Um, we also have support groups for caregivers, for people living with, uh, with um, uh, lymphoma, for people living with um, uh, who, are, who are young adult caregivers, um, older adult caregivers, older adults with a particular type of cancer, younger adults with a particular type of cancer. So really, we try to cover the whole age spectrum here. Um, and also helping children understand when someone in their family has cancer, how to talk to them, um, how to address their questions based on the age of the children, and, and, and um, just their ability to take information in. So our staff, we have a special program that cancer care for kids in which we help people, um, parents or guardians, um, adults, um, with those types of questions that children will often ask, or um, or sometimes they won't ask, but they notice something is going on that's different. Um, and we also have, of course, these workshops that we offer. Um, um, we have many of these workshops on many different topics, um, and we have publications to match them, so we have various publications as well. So that gives you a sense of all the different services that we do offer. And, um, and now we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we, again, we're going to try to take as many as possible. Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a question. And our first question comes from Joan B. Your line is open. Uh, yes. I, I have transformed follicular lymphoma to large diffuse. And I wondered how does, I, I didn't really understand what you meant by the double hit and triple hit lymphoma. How does that apply to transformed and what do the 
how do you find out whether you have double or triple hit and what are the qualifications? Well, thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Strauss, do you want to start with that? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> follicular B-cell lymphoma can grow faster. And uh, if you do a biopsy, it can look like a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or a high-grade B-cell lymphoma. Double and triple hit lymphomas can occur in the setting of transformation or they can occur in newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is of germinal center type, which is also true of the lower grade follicular B-cell lymphomas. So these, uh, you know, when this is diagnosed, the treatment is usually the pretty much the same as what we use for newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. For sort of more, less aggressive uh, variants of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, RCHOP would be the standard treatment. Uh, and for the double hit uh, variants, we would also consider using uh, dose-adjusted EPOC-R, which, again, anecdotally may be better than uh, than than uh, uh, than than RCHOP for this type of aggressive transformation. So it is a little complicated, but again, it's the it's the same underlying follicular lymphoma that has just picked up additional genetic alterations that probably are responsible for its faster growth and its appearance as a more primitive lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell type or high-grade lymphoma, same underlying disease, but just additional mutations have caused it to have a more aggressive course, and we treat it like a more aggressive lymphoma. Thank you. And uh, uh, Dr. Rutherford, do you want to add anything? Um, sure. I would just wanted to add, I know part of the question, too, was how do you how do you know if you have that? And I would just ask your doctor um, to to um, go over the pathology with you, and you can mention specifically about the double hit and wanting to know if, if you have that. And this is a test that is done at some hospitals um, and other, other places send it to a special lab to be done. So um, I would imagine it probably has already been done and the information could be relayed to you. And if not, you could request that that be sent to a special lab to be, to be done so that you can know the diagnosis accurately. And I guess is this a good time just to comment about just this? Is this so? Would it be is it helpful to get a second opinion at um, one of the comprehensive centers, or at least to contact them about one's treatment? Is that something um, that is recommended for this type of lymphoma? Oh, I think so. Sure. Thank you. Um, I think it is, you know, again, there are um, some very um, particular subtypes or subgroups within diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which Dr. Strauss spent some time going over, and um, the majority are still managed with RCHOP, um, but I, I do think it's helpful to have um, pathologists who are very used to looking at these different variants and can really make sure that we have the accurate diagnosis for the patient because, of course, you want to make sure the diagnosis is, is correct before moving forward with therapy. Um, I would encourage people to do that if, if they have the ability to do so. Excellent. Thank you. And do you want to add anything to that, um, Dr. Strauss? No, I think that uh, Dr. Rutherford, you know, covered it well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, and we have another telephone question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Susan R. Your line is open. Hi. I guess that that's me. Um, what I wanted to ask was I had large diffuse B-cell lymphoma in 1998, and then in 2017 I was diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, and they did a genetic test, and they're not related. So... I have a new primary follicular lymphoma, and I was uh, it, it was only stage one, so I was treated with radiation. 
But what I wanted to know, and this could be way down the line, is and maybe what the other person was asking is how do you treat a transformation if you've already had chopped chemotherapy? That's an excellent question. Um, Dr. Rutherford, do you, Dr. Rutherford, do you want to address that? Sure. Um, yes, Susan, that's a very good question. And, and um, I, I do want to note that the fact that it's been um, so many years now since you were originally diagnosed with the diffuse to be cell lymphoma that that, you know, t- typically the, this amount of time after we would not expect a diffuse B cell lymphoma to come back. Um, in general, if, however, if a follicular lymphoma trans- is found to then be transformed into diffuse B cell lymphoma after a person has already received an RCHOP or similar therapy, I think that's what you're asking. Um, we would typically yeah. treat with a second-line type regimen that I went over. So we talked about the two different chemotherapy regimens, RICE or RDHAP or similar RDHACs and then stem cell transplant. So if, you know, if a transformed lymphoma were to come back later after a person already got RCHOP, it would be considered like a recurrence of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and um, usually the patient would get um, second-line chemotherapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant if, um, if uh, the uh, disease is, is able to be um, uh, uh, gone into a, a complete remission or complete response. Um, certainly, you know, these types of questions that are specific to your cases, I definitely want um, to, you know, for you to discuss with your own physician because there could be nuances that I'm not aware of. But, um, but in general, I would say, um, based on what you've told me, that your prognosis is quite good um, to have had so many years in between um, uh, and then to have this um, uh, just stage one disease be essentially, it sounds like, cured with radiation um, with follicular lymphoma. Thank you. Thanks. Dr. Strauss, do you want to add anything? No. Well, a little bit. I think uh, Dr. Rutherford, again, uh, covered the question very well. But it is very interesting. I mean, because I mentioned that the low-grade B-cell lymphomas can transform to faster-growing lymphomas. Well, conversely, you can have sort of retro-transformation where diseases that at diagnosis are diffuse large B-cell lymphoma may actually have been underlying low-grade lymphomas that when they were detected were transformed. And such lymphomas, the same lymphoma can recur even after many years as the low-grade form of the lymphoma. But I think it's very interesting that they went another step and they did genetic and um, other special studies to show that the lymphoma was a different lymphoma, was not a late relapse of the original lymphoma. And if that's the case, then you kind of treat it like a new ball game, kind of like having fleas and lice, you know, so you treat them differently. So I think, you know, for a localized uh, new follicular lymphoma, regardless of your history, if it's a new lymphoma, you know, radiation therapy was a very was a very good treatment. Uh, one of the things that limits uh, the use of repeating something like RCHOP is the use of doxorubicin, which uh, can damage the heart, as Dr. Rutherford mentioned, and uh, particularly over a certain cumulative dose. So if you've already had uh, a certain dose, your heart has seen a certain dose, but the cancer has not, the recurrent cancer. So that's one of the things that leads us to use other regimens in addition to the fact that the RCHOP did not seem to be curative. Thank you. Excellent. Wow. Okay, this is really, uh, I have to say, wonderful questions, but wonderful speakers to address them. So this is really good questions here. Um, There's questions for Dr. Strauss from one of our online participants. Um, What if a patient relapses after transplant? Well, this is a a difficult uh, situation. I think uh, it depends. Uh, I think that the chance, you know, it it is it is more difficult to treat than before transplant or after, you know, with initial treatment. Um, 
I think uh, there are many different regimens that can be used to get the disease under control, although there are conventional regimens would not be likely to be curative. There are clinical trials which are testing new agents, and in some situations these may be a very good option. And there are a couple of other options that I think might uh, give the maximum chance for a durable remission, if not a cure. And this would be the CAR T-cell approach that Dr. Rutherford spoke about. And also, in some patients, uh, a different type of transplant, which is called allogeneic stem cell transplant. And in, as Dr. Rutherford described, autologous stem cell transplant is kind of a misnomer because it really is not the, the stem cells from yourself that produce blood are not really transplanted cells that are treating the lymphoma. They're sort of a supportive measure that allow you to go above doses of chemotherapy that would or otherwise sort of knock out the production of blood potentially forever and to give back cells that can reconstitute the pressure. So it's really high-dose chemotherapy with the support of your own stem cells. Allogeneic uh, transplant is from a uh, brother or sister or a sometimes you can use another family member who's less well-matched uh, with tissue type of matching or a match unrelated donor. In, the, in this situation, the transplanted cells are similar genetically to your own cells, but they're a little bit different. And so the transplant cells actually are the treatment because they produce an immune response to the cancer cells in you. So that is a true transplant. So I think that you know, CAR T-cell approach or an allogeneic transplant approach and people who are suitable for that are uh, options that are considered. Excellent. And Dr. Rutherford, do you want to add anything? I don't think so. I think that was a very comprehensive response. Excellent. Thank you. Wow. This will probably be our last question, uh, Dr. Rutherford. What therapies are helpful for reducing complications? Okay, um, so I, I will interpret this to mean um, w- supportive care type treatments that we can give along with the chemotherapy. Um, so um, one of the standards would be to, um, particularly in older patients, and there's not an exact cutoff for this, um, but the one of the most common side effects of, of a multi-agent chemotherapy like RCHOP, for example, is that it lowers the blood counts temporarily um, and the reason we give that regimen every three weeks is that it takes about three weeks for the blood counts to come back to their normal level. Um, and so often in older patients, we will use a, a growth factor that's called pegfilgrastem, um, which is injected either on the day after chemotherapy or now there's a patch that can be put on um, on the day of chemotherapy, which effectively injects the next day and helps to boost the white blood cells in between treatment to minimize the time when the white blood cell count is low and then this um, should decrease the risk of infection. Um, we also, in usually in someone's first cycle, we'll have them come back about a week after the first treatment um, to check their blood counts and to see um, you know, occasionally people will need blood transfusion or platelet transfusions as well. That's not so common with the RCHOP regimen, but more common with the dose-adjusted EPOC regimen, which is more intensive with an extra drug um, and uh, a little bit higher doses of, of um, some of the agents. Um, so that would be one of the mainstays. We often will put people on, um, again, for in older populations with uh, a prophylactic or preventative antibiotics um, or antiviral medications also to try to prevent infection in that interim period in the three weeks um, where people uh, have temporarily low blood counts. Um, other um, supportive options include um, Mouth rinses, Dr. Um, Strauss mentioned that some patients get mouth sores. That also also tends to happen at the time when the blood counts are low, and so that may just be a few days in the middle of the treatment cycles. Um, There's magic mouthwatch is a combination of of, um, medications that can help um, make that better. And then we also just in general advocate for um, good uh, 
oral hygiene and using even um, biotin is another um, commercially available mouthwash that can help really keep the mouth clean during the treatment. Um, and then the other uh, would be uh, anti-nausea medications. And actually, these regimens are, are pretty well tolerated from the standpoint of nausea. A lot of patients actually don't get that much nausea with this compared to some other treatments we give. I think part of that is because steroids are included in many of these regimens. For example, the P in, in our chop is prednisone, and that is actually a very good um, medication to prevent nausea, particularly delayed nausea that may happen in the days after chemotherapy. Um, and that regimen includes prednisone for five days. So um, we also will prescribe um, other anti-nausea medications. Ondansetron is one of the most common. And we, we give them um, prior to the chemotherapy as well, which helps a lot. So um, certainly there, there are um, many different um, supportive care interventions that can be done. And I urge you, again, to be very forthcoming with your doctor if you're going through chemotherapy. I know sometimes patients are nervous to say um, that they're having a hard time with certain side effects, but um, your team is really going to want to know exactly what's going on um, with you so that we can target um, so that your doctor can target um, those side effects and really try to make it as easy as possible for you to get through the treatment, knowing that it that is a, um, can be a tough road for some people. Thank you very much. That's excellent. And we have one for Dr. Strauss, this one light-breaking question. Um, so how does the chance of occurrence change over time following RCHOP for um, DLBCL subtype GCB? I'm sure. I'm not sure. Could you repeat the question? I'm not sure I understand. How does the chance of recurrence change over time following RCHOP for oh, okay. DLBCL subtype GCB? Okay. Uh, most of the recurrences tend to occur within the first two to three years. So the frequency of follow-up visits sort of increases, the interval between them increases with time. After three years or so, uh, the chances are reduced. And after five years, the chances of recurrence are much reduced. And so um, if patients have not received radiation therapy, which can be associated with uh, late side effects, we will generally discharge patients from follow-up after three to five years. We usually follow patients for five years. So the big risk period is the first two to three years. I don't know if Dr. Rutherford's uh, policies or follow-up policies are similar. Dr. Rutherford? Thank you, Dr. I agree with that. I agree with that time frame, and that was one of the reasons when um, Susan asked her question that the fact that she had done so well for 20 years, um, you know, indicates that she had responded very well, and you know, it would be unlikely for a diffuser to be cell lymphoma to recur, you know, outside of a two to three year period, really. So our most active surveillance of um, of lymphoma diffuser to be cell lymphoma after treatment will be during that time period, and of course, we would continue to follow subsequent to that. And I agree with the five year time frame that was mentioned. Um, but we we um, uh, we feel better um, after we we hit that two to three year point that the patient is is likely to be in a in a long term um, complete remission. If I could just make one uh, one brief addition, which is that late late uh, recurrence is possible. It's it's not very likely, but the value of six monthly or annual visits is really questionable because if something recurs and is going to require attention, the chances that you will notice something is far, far, far greater than a early recurrence, I mean a, a small uh, early in the sense of minimal recurrence, not in the sense of the time from when you were diagnosed, but a, a small recurrence or is a recurrence that is going to require attention, you will notice, regardless of whether the follow-ups would be uh, scheduled at six months, a year, or three months. I mean, you, you will notice something. So I never cut off follow-up. I say after five years, you know, if you notice something or have any questions, give me a call and I'll see you. That's a very important note to leave a call on because actually, um, if you just want to say that, it's so important because a lot of times people 
so other things that they should particularly look out for or just anything that they notice they would just call or... right so it's really important to have that dialogue with one's um, healthcare team. Very important. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been extraordinary. I also want to thank all of you on the call who really asked really great questions. This is really an amazing program, and really because of this whole team effort here. So I want to thank everybody. Um, and I know there are some people who still have questions. So um, I do want to mention just there are organizations out there that we partner with on the program that are specific to lymphoma that I think would be really a wonderful resource. I often also give the National Cancer Institute as a resource as well because they have both an 800 number, they have a website, they have a live chat feature on the website with their information specialists. But I, I feel like I would be remiss in not mentioning, particularly calling out the Lymphoma Research Foundation or the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, both of which have call centers. You can call them. They have publications and all sorts of information that could be very helpful if you still have medical questions um, or if that you didn't get answered. And, of course, we don't want to sidestep your treating healthcare team, so indeed you do want to take your questions to your healthcare team as well. Even if you asked a question today um, or you heard somebody else's question and think, how does this relate to me, Please, as I think uh, it's very important to, to talk to your doctor first, of course, about those things. Um, but um, there are some very credible websites out there, and I'm going to just um, call out the ones that we really have carefully vetted. So the Lymphoma Research Foundation, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the American Cancer Society, for medical questions that you may have in addition to talking to your healthcare team. Those are very important. And you'll be getting in your evaluation today all of those resources so that you'll be able to have them at your fingertips as well. And for those of you who'd like to pursue any assistance with cancer care, whether it be financial assistance or counseling services or joining a support group, you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or come to our website at www.cancercare.org. And most importantly, as we conclude today, I don't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with lymphoma. Um, with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or with any type of cancer or lymphoma, uh, you now know that you're part of a very large community of support. There are lots of organizations out there that you can come to, and um, please do take advantage of them. Um, they have lots of resources for you, and um, you can often sometimes call one and say, what can you do for me? Because you're just curious to know what could they, how could they help you. Um, so um, I want to thank you all again, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.